Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we are continuing our discussion of actuarial science and insurance. And if you didn't listen to part one, go back and do that. This is part two. Uh, We're jumping in right where we left off in the story that includes actuarial science, assurance, and insurance. We define what assurance versus insurance means at the top of part one. Uh, So you'll want that information. When we left off, we had just discussed the Society of Assurance for Widows and Orphans, which formed in 1699 to ensure that a person's next of kin had a financial cushion when the family breadwinner died. And today we're going to talk about another assurance society and the various problems that both insurance and assurance companies ran into in the 18th and 19th centuries as well as a look at gambling. In 1706, the Amicable Society for a Perpetual Assurance Office was founded, and this is often called the first life insurance company, although technically it was assurance and not insurance. Uh, As with the society that we mentioned at the end of Monday's episode, membership to the society was also capped at 2,000, Members paid six pounds, four pence each year. And at the close of each year, money that had been collected was split among the next of kin of any members who had died that year. If no one had died or if very few people had died, the funds could be unencumbered to pay out annuities to members or for investment by the society. Those investments included malt tallies, mine venture bonds, hollow sword blade bonds, and lottery tickets. Yes, lottery tickets. (laughs) Uh, There was an age requirement that was based in part on Hallie's tables. Members had to be between the ages of 12 and 45 to minimize the risk of too many members dying in any given year. 
That would, of course, drop the payout amounts at the end of the year, and it would leave the group with far fewer contributors into the following year. Yeah, uh, in case you didn't recall, this is different from the Assurance Society we talked about at the end of Part 1, where they had to pay an amount every time someone died, everyone chipped in a set amount to create their payout. Whereas in this case, you paid a flat fee every year and that pool of money was then used to make payouts. Uh, So it was set up a little bit differently. Things were evolving. Yeah. Try to find the best way. It reminds me a little bit of some of the mutual aid societies that have come up on the show before uh, that sometimes would run run into trouble with just being financially insolvent as their membership base aged over the years. Yep. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about similar things happening here in a bit. But in 1756, James Dodson created the first table of annual assurance premiums, and that used the Edmund Halley table that we talked about in Part 1 as a foundation. Dodson was born in 1710 and became a mathematician. And at the age of 40, he wrote a book titled The Accountant or The Method of Bookkeeping. And this laid out how various businesses might model their account keeping to know at all times what their debts and profits were, as well as how future expenditures and income might play out. And these were not theoretical models. It was like a workbook. He laid out, for example, how exactly a shoemaker should set up their books with lists of raw materials that might be part of that industry to include in their expenses, calculations they should make for retail space, etc. It really was a how-to manual. And when he prepared his table of premiums, he was motivated by frustration at having been excluded from the amicable society, as they did not admit anyone over the age of 45, and he was 46 at this time. There is also a version of this story that he was actually asked by other people who were interested in forming a new society to do this, but we do know that there was this age issue. So he envisioned with this this new data set a new insurance company that could use more up-to-date information to create more inclusive insurance options, and his table was a way to modernize Halley's data for the mid-18th century. And just as he had laid out how-tos on setting up various other businesses in his earlier writing, he wrote out what was essentially a guidebook for insurance companies, including the principles of a good business and ways to be both equitable and profitable. In the documents he prepared for the more comprehensive assurance operation, he included the following four tables. A table of decrements wherein the hazard of life is esteemed to be as great as any author has conceived it to be, or as can be deduced from any bills of mortality hitherto made public. A table of the present values of annuities of one pound each for single lives computed at 3% compound interest from the foregoing principles. A table of premiums payable for insuring at one payment 100 pounds on a life of a given age, deduced from the preceding table of the values of annuities on lives. A table of annual premiums payable for insuring 100 pounds during the whole continuance of a single life of any of the following ages, according to the foregoing principles. Dodson died at the age of 47, seven months after his work was used to petition the Privy Council for a charter for a new company. So that seems kind of like a cruel twist of fate. Yeah, so just to clarify, in case any of that um, didn't make obvious to you, he was basically going, okay, but what if... (laughs) 
we included people that are older than 45, but they just have to pay a different amount. Like, they pay in a little bit more because we know there's greater risk. Like, he was the first one who really laid out how that might all work. The first mutual insurance company was the Society for Equitable Assurances on Lives and Survivorship. That company was established in London in 1762 by Edward Rowe Moores, who had known Dodson and had literally picked up where Dodson had left off. 200 years later, Dodson was still invoked by actuaries when speaking of his contribution. A.H. Rowell, writing for the Journal of the Institute of Actuaries in, in 1962, states, quote, Life assurance was born in the middle of the period 1740 to 1780, Johnson's England, and came when it did because the climate was favorable England was prosperous, the mathematics of life contingencies was at hand, and there was an unsatisfied demand for the protection that life assurance can give. It also came when it did because one man, James Dodson, FRS, was determined that it should. Largely responsible as he was for the availability of the necessary mathematics, he also realized fully the benefits that life assurance could confer. He conceived the vision of a mutual life assurance society conducted on scientific lines and was, all in all, the ideal architect of the equitable to be. Moores is often cited as the first person to assign the title of actuary to the work that he and others were doing was described by an actuary historian as having, quote, exceptional ability in academic studies, yet with a quarrelsome temper. He probably needed to have some fight because setting up a new sort of business was a lot of work, and both the establishing process and the early days of explaining how the whole operation worked to clients was arduous. He received his master's degree at the Merchant Taylor's School at Queen's College, Oxford, in 1753, he was very smart with a broad range of knowledge and was considered to be an eccentric. We don't know really why he started using the word actuary for the work that was being done in the field of assurance calculation. It's chalked up in some accounts as possibly just being a word he plucked from history because of his eccentricity. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about his eccentricity on behind the <laughs> scenes because he's a pretty interesting figure. Um, but regarding the use of the title of actuary, M.E. Ogborn, Joint Actuary of the Equitable Life Assurance Society, wrote in the Journal of the Institute of Actuaries in 1956 about Morse's claim to the term, opening with, actuary is a curious word by which to describe the profession to which it has become attached. There is no obvious connection between the meaning of the word and the professional duties which it signifies. Moreover, the title of actuary is still in use for other officials who may, by their duties, have a more direct claim to the title from its original derivation. The Latin word actuarius is the word that actuary is derived from. In Latin, this could be assigned to various jobs, including wage disbursement. As a borrow word, actuary in the English language referred to registrars or clerks or to secretaries or accountants who kept a company's books. But then, thanks to Moore's use of the word, it also came to mean an insurance official who used statistical tables to calculate premiums or manage financial risks. But Moore's included the list of duties he thought the actuary of the company should perform in the Equitable Society's formation paperwork, and it included things that were not just calculations of tables. The actuary was expected to go to work each day except Sunday, 
write and keep the books, enter the applications for membership and all transactions into a daily journal, and enter the minutes of the society's meetings. People of a higher rank were actually the ones responsible for the decisions regarding finance numbers. Yeah, so it's not quite the role of actuary as we see it now. So next, we're going to jump to Wales and talk about a man who redefined what that role was to be more like what we would think today. But before we talk about William Morgan, we are going to pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping, and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. And keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. 
William Morgan was born on May 26, 1750, in Newcastle, Glamorgan, Wales. It's believed that his birth date is based on the Julian calendar, as other records show his date of birth as June 6. That was likely the date after the Gregorian calendar was adopted, which happened just two years after he was born. Uh, His father, also named William Morgan, was a physician and an apothecary, and his mother was Sarah Price Morgan. The Morgans had eight children. William was the third and the first son, and his father decided that he should also go into medicine. There's a gap in the records regarding William's early schooling. The Dictionary of Welsh Biography notes that there aren't records of his attendance at the Cowbridge Grammar School, although his brother George is listed as a student but it seems likely that William also attended. The school is mentioned by him in his writings. William was not, it seems, entirely sure about the plan for him to become a doctor, but he left home at 19 to go to London for medical study. His first apprenticeship with an apothecary appears to have ended in some kind of physical altercation with his boss, at which point his uncle on his mother's side, Richard Price, helped him get a second apprenticeship. During this same period, Richard Price published the book Observations on Reversionary Payments. That was in 1771. Price's book established systems and formulas that laid out how annuities could work for pensioners and widows. Not long after Price released the book, his brother-in-law and William Morgan's father died. And this meant that even though William was still technically a medical student, he had to go home to Wales to try to keep his father's medical practice running. This did not go well at all. Um, I saw one write-up that suggested he was too young and people didn't trust him. He also may have had a mild physical deformity that made people think he was not capable of being a doctor, which is baloney, but it it just did not work out. He was not going to have a career in medicine. Uh, So soon he went back to London and he asked his uncle Richard Price for advice. And Price reportedly asked William if he knew anything about math, and William told him that he did not, but that he sure would be happy to learn. So Price, who was working at this point with the Society for Equitable Assurances, found his nephew a low-level job there. And less than two years into his time with the company, then 25-year-old William became its actuary, and he served in that role for more than 50 years. This is an important moment in actuarial history because William, working with his uncle, refined actuary science in significant ways. Richard Price published a data set called the Northampton Table in 1780, It used a long-term study of the parish of Northampton to assemble detailed mortality statistics. The table included more than four decades of information, so it was pretty robust. And William Morgan used this table to further refine the formulas that were used in calculating premiums. He wrote two papers on the matter, both of which were presented by his uncle to the Royal Society, and this resulted in William being made a fellow there. William's entry into the actuary field is recognized as important because he was able to advance the mathematics of it to a point where the Equitable Assurance Company flourished, and he advised other companies at a time when many were still struggling to make policy payouts and stay afloat. In 1806, the Amicable Society reorganized, and they adopted a graduated scale of premiums based on Morgan's work. 
Though many other men were working on these concepts before him, Morgan's contributions to the advancement of his field were so significant that he's often called the father of actuarial science, and he is often called the first true actuary. Because of his valuable service to the company, when he retired after 56 years, he continued to receive his full salary amount annually until his death. He's sometimes considered the first real actuary in the sense that we use the word today because he had both medical and mathematical expertise, and he could use those to elevate the position of actuary beyond the more secretarial duties that had initially been laid out for the position. He could make and refine tables, really analyze liability from a medical standpoint, and calculate premiums based on both. When William Morgan was right in the middle of his career, a man named Jacob Shoemaker opened the first actuary office in North America. That was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1809. And that was the Pennsylvania Company for Insurances on Lives and Granting Annuities. By 1823, Boston also had a life insurance company, and in 1830, so did New York. The first mutual life insurance company in North America, that's a company that's owned by its policyholders, opened in the 1840s. Forming a society of actuaries in the U.S. was discussed for decades before it finally got off the ground. The Actuarial Society of America was established in 1889 with just 38 members, and it began publishing an actuarial periodical called Transactions. As actuary work and insurance companies were growing in the U.S. and Europe, Britain experienced an event called the Insurance Controversy in 1852. A growing concern about the way insurance and assurance companies were operating led to a call to the Board of Trade to investigate. And it became apparent that over the course of several years, at the end of the 1840s and into the 1850s, a group of new assurance associations had taken in 745,010 pounds. They had disbursed 87,989 pounds in claims and annuities and had spent 287,339 pounds on operating expenses. That meant they had spent more than 50% of the money they had taken in, leaving a relatively small sum to invest and to pay out as claims arose, That led to accusations of ignorant business practices at best and corruption at worst. Yeah, as Tracy mentioned, uh, often these kinds of societies would start to break down because the finances just didn't work out. And like right out of the gate, they were spending way more than they should be. And this led to an examination of existing laws and calls for reform from the Institute of Actuaries, including the recommendation that a person had to pass examinations to become an actuary. You couldn't just say, I'm good at math, this is my job. The parliamentary committee that prepared an extensive report on the matter noted that one big problem was that you couldn't really legislate away fraud. It was already against the law, and swindlers were always going to try it. But that a need for change was really recognized. The committee report noted that the field of assurance operated very differently from almost any other business, so trying to adapt existing business law to it was obviously not working. The remainder of the 1850s were a time of new legislation and efforts to head off abuses in the industry in the UK. And one of those changes was that life assurance companies were protected by a limited liability law, meaning members were protected and knew up front how much they could lose if things went completely wrong with the Assurance Association. 
1869, the Institute of Actuaries published a new, more accurate mortality table, and that was considered far more accurate and scientifically compiled than its predecessors. To collect data for it, the Institute collected information from 20 British life assurance offices, which included a total of 147,000 counted people who had health exams when they joined assurance societies and were pronounced healthy. It tracked the number of deaths within the group, The Institute published, alongside this table, a monetary analysis of it. So we're going to talk about some of the challenges that face the actuarial sciences and the insurance industry in the 20th century, right after we hear from some of Stuff You Missed in History Class's sponsors. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping and say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear, upfront pricing. And no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there, helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative. 
and keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. On September 2nd, 1895, the first International Congress of Actuaries was held. Brussels, Belgium was the host city, and many cities have hosted it over the decades. It moves every time. It has convened at roughly four-year intervals ever since, the most recent having been held in Sydney, Australia in 2023. And September 2nd remains International Actuaries Day. The organizing group was named the Comité Permanent des Congrès d'Actuaires, or Standing Committee of Actuarial Congresses. It was officially renamed the International Actuarial Association in 1968. The early 20th century was a time of extreme challenge and growth for actuarial science. There were suddenly a lot of new circumstances that changed life expectancy in some cases dramatically. In the course of just a few decades, the airplane was invented. Maybe not as big of an effect now, but early airplanes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) Uh, There were two world wars. There was an influenza epidemic the Great Depression, the beginning of the social security system in the U.S., and advances in science and technology that changed quality of life while also introducing new risks. At the same time, an insurance shift that came from the corporate sector had to be incorporated into actuarial science. As companies started to offer group insurance to employees and pension plans became both more common and more complex, All of those benefits and their costs had to be accounted for so that insurance companies could set their rates and know both the risks and potential profitability of their plans. Also, during the first half of the 20th century, multiple professional actuarial organizations formed in the U.S. This resulted in a lot of cases where an actuary was a member of multiple groups that essentially had the same purposes and goals. And in 1949, several of these groups merged to form the Society of Actuaries, headquartered in Chicago. In the time since then, of course, actuarial science has continued to encounter shifts that impact the way their work assesses things like life expectancy. Additionally, the computer age has meant that not only has computing power enabled great calculation capability and machine-generated tables, but it's also brought more variables with it. So the work continues to evolve. I imagine that um, COVID threw a big wrench into all of all of actuarial science. I remember seeing some threads that were about, like, actuarial data that was tracking what was happening in terms of, like, life expectancy and long COVID and all of that stuff. Um, And I'm saying that from memory. It's not something I could suddenly call up without uh, doing some more Googling. Today, though, becoming an actuary takes a while. In addition to schooling, there are multiple exams and additional certifications that are pretty important to career development and progression. That said, though, it's a career that routinely appears on best jobs lists because it remains in demand, 
with a good salary range and growth opportunities. U.S. News & World Report ranks Actuary as number eight in best business jobs, number 13 in best STEM jobs, and number 22 in best paying jobs, and number 27 in 100 best jobs, with a salary rating of 8.1 out of 10 and above-median scores in growth, stress, and work-life balance. Listen, did I have a moment while doing this research where I went, should I have become an actuary? Not that my job isn't great, but like, I don't know, it uh, it doesn't show up on the top top 100 list at this point. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I had the same thing when I read this paragraph, and then I thought about, you know, my lifelong math struggle. (laughs) Right, right. This is the trick, if only. (laughs) Uh, The thing that we have not talked about yet, and I feel like is almost becoming the elephant in the podcast room, is the perception that insurance is a form of gambling. But it is sometimes described that way. And whether it is or isn't has been debated by people for a very long time. Writing for the Connecticut Insurance Law Journal in 2008, Timothy Auburn opened his analysis of the matter with, quote, more directly than any other enterprise apart from slavery, life insurance set a price on human life. As it evolved in Britain during the 19th century, the insurance industry introduced a dizzying number of variations on this theme. For the individual purchasing an insurance policy, the value of life was translated into the sum required to care for dependents, loss of access to a wife's inheritance should she die before her father, the sum lost to a creditor in the event of death occurring prior to repayment, and the loss of livelihood suffered by a tenant whose lease ended with the life of a third party. All these reasons for buying insurance established an equivalence between mortality and monetary value, a death nexus that precisely and morbidly expressed the cash nexus derided by Thomas Carlyle as the moral failing of British society. Auburn also notes that, quote, since nobody knew for certain when they would die, a life insurance policy was also, by definition, a wager. And since wagers occupied a quite different category, there was always at least a potential for the life office to take on the darker colors of the gambling den. Uh, to be clear, in case you think I'm I'm saying he's saying something he isn't, Auburn is not saying that insurance is gambling, but he's setting the stage for the discussion of how Britain addressed this concern from a legal perspective. In part one, we mentioned the 1690 case in which a man named Thornborough took out a policy on a man he was not related to who was ill as an act of fraud. That kind of thing started happening frequently, and over a few decades, it became tied to another rather callous sort of entertainment that was popular in gentlemen's clubs in the 18th century, and that was betting on the deaths of strangers. Taking out life insurance policies was a way to get around gambling laws. If a person held a policy on somebody, it was defensible, at least per the letter of the law, for them to speculate on when that person might die. But in reality, the money spent on the policy was often from a gambling pool. The bettors would pay in to cover the premium and each place a bet on when the insured person would die. And then the winner got the payout. It's so troubling to me that this is an activity in clubs that were considered gentlemen's clubs because it's the least gentlemanly behavior I can imagine. 
But to combat this grisly form of amusement and the insurance fraud that was often hand-in-hand with it, Britain passed the Life Assurance Act of 1774. It was also known as the Gambling Act. And the language of that act stipulated that no one could hold a policy on another person's life if they did not have a legitimate interest in that person's life, and that all life insurance policies had to include a list of beneficiaries' names. It also forbid overinsuring. You couldn't, for example, take out a policy on someone that was worth a great deal more than they were worth financially. This was to deter people from trying to get rich from the passing of a family member through insurance. This act impacted insurance in ways that it really didn't intend to. Its language was ambiguous in some areas, and it enabled people to find loopholes. There were instances where the difference between insuring people and insuring items got kind of fuzzy. Additionally, as insurance became less exclusively an upper-class luxury and something that the working class also used, some of the provisions of the act excluded financial interests of beneficiaries that were actually completely reasonable. One of the main reasons people took out life insurance policies was so that their families wouldn't be unduly burdened by the expense of a funeral at a time when they were grieving. That's something people still use it for today, but per the Gambling Act, burial was not an insurable interest. But policies continued to be issued knowing that the money would be used that way, Eventually, the law caught up to reality with some amendments, but for a while, insurers were issuing policies that they knew were technically illegal. Yeah, there, uh, I didn't see this, I don't remember the statistic, but I saw one that was like more than 50% of policies could have technically been stricken uh, because people knew that's what they were being taken out for. This issue of people thinking of insurance as gambling is not exactly settled. There are plenty of fairly recent articles about it. In 2017, a BBC News article written by Tim Harford sums up the distinction this way. Legally and culturally, there is a clear distinction between gambling and insurance. Economically, the difference is less visible. In an article published in the journal Gaming Law Review and Economics in 2014, Gambling law expert I. Nelson Rose noted that, quote, insurance is, of course, gambling. Looking at just the required three elements, insurance has consideration, prize, and chance. A policyholder puts up a sum with the expectation of winning a larger sum if a certain contingent future event occurs. Insurance meets the legal definition of gambling. The big difference, according to Rose, is that in the case of gambling, the gambler hopes the payoff event will happen, and in the case of insurance, the insured hopes it won't. Dun-dun-dun. That's really the big distinction. Sort of. There are still people, I mean, you'll find it literally anywhere. If you Google, is insurance gambling on the internet, you will find people on both sides of that debate that are very, very adamant of the correctness of their position. Um, (laughs) Um, anyway, that's our really very brief, I feel like, look at insurance, assurance, and actuary science, which I find quite fascinating. Um, now I have some fun to me listener mail. Okay, this is from our listener Caroline, who writes, Hi, Holly and Tracy, season's greetings and a happy new year to you both from Harrow in England. 
After listening to the 17th century roots of the metric system, I thought I would write to tell you the effect of growing up in England in the 70s and 80s on the way I measure things. As mentioned in the podcast, this was when schools in the UK started teaching the metric system. However, the outside world was still very much imperial. We've a little progress in using the metric system, but it has stalled, leaving me and others as a kind of hybrid. To give you some examples, when talking about the weather, I only understand how hot it is if the temperature is in Celsius but if taking a child's temperature, I'm a nanny, I find it easier to tell if they have a high fever if I'm measuring in Fahrenheit. When measuring lengths, I can only use millimeter, centimeter, and meter, but long distances need to be in miles. I have no clue about feet and yards, but most people around my age do. When cooking or baking, I can use both metric and imperial measurements for both wet and dry ingredients. While having a stalled system change may sound like it would be confusing, it actually seems like it's the best for the moment. I suspect there would be pandemonium if they tried to make a full change all in one go. Thanks so much for your podcast. I love the topics you talk about and always learn something new. I also love the behind the scenes. They're my favorite episodes. You both have amazing sounding laughs, which always make me feel happy. Kind regards, Caroline. Caroline, this is such a sweet email, but also this is um, wonderful. (laughs) I kind of love this idea of living in both, but also I can see how it would become tricky potentially when traveling. Like if you go to a country that is all metric, how do you know if someone is running a fever? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's, thank thank goodness is what I will say for smartphones because I'm whipping that thing out to do calculations all the time. I remember when we went to uh, Italy which was a trip that got delayed several times because of COVID. And when we were there, there were rules about, uh, you know, isolating if you had symptoms and stuff. And I remember the, like, it was a metric fever line. Yes. And being like, oh, this is good to know. It's in metric. And then I was like, wait a minute, my thermometer (laughs) is is not in Celsius. It's in Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah, I, on the flip of that, when the pandemic was really, like, at its, you know, early manifestation when it was a very panicky time, I realized I didn't have a working thermometer and I ordered one online. But, of course, supplies were low because everybody was doing that and the only one I could get was Celsius. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We now accidentally have four because... um, when uh, when COVID finally struck our household, Patrick was trying to isolate in the attic, and he had one up there. And then I also got sick, and I was like, I don't, I can't go into the attic; it's too far. And so I just ordered another one, and then that became the one that I would just put in the bag for when traveling. Um, and then couldn't f- find it in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it was still in the bag. It was just sort of like tucked in a weird place. And like, so I replaced it again. And I'm like, there's just, there's just thermometers everywhere now. Listen, there's no problem with having lots of thermometers. Um, d- uh, one day, one day I'll develop my ability to do these calculations in my head, maybe. Yeah, Maybe that'll be a 2025 resolution. In the meantime, if you would like to write us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at iHeartRadio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you would like to subscribe and have not done so yet, that is easy as pie. You can do it on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Speaking of 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Today. 